Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Comics Books, the podcast where your host Lucy Dancer, that's me, talks to my favourite comedians and comic writers about the books they love. Today I am delighted to be speaking to the writer, broadcaster and comedian Viv Groskop. You might have watched her on stage, seen her on Women's Hour, heard her podcast How to Own the Room or read one of her books about literature. She's such an incredibly multi-talented woman that amazingly that description doesn't even scratch the surface and I could go on for days just introducing her but instead... Let's just talk to Viv. Hello, Viv. Hello. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I do indeed probably do too many things. I think you have the perfect career, honestly. I'm so... Never say that to anybody. What things look like from the outside (laughs) is never the same as how they are on the inside. But thank you. (laughs) So I was particularly excited about having you on the podcast because obviously, although I'm speaking to comedians, my big love are books and reading and from what I know about you, you are also a pretty obsessive reader or have always been. Yeah, I mean, I find it difficult to imagine anybody who doesn't have reading at the centre of their life, if that doesn't sound really pretentious. I mm. guess I've always wanted to read books. You know, my mum used to say when I was really little that I used to get really angry when I was about two or three because I couldn't read. You know, I, oh. I always felt that... I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I then didn't read until I was about five or six, you know, it wasn't like, and then I taught myself to read within two weeks. But I always felt like there's something, it's interesting, like in the age of the internet, because I think things are perhaps a bit different now, but like growing up, growing up in the 70s and the 80s, I always felt like everything that you needed to know was in books. And yes. you're not going to find out about it from people because they're not going to tell you a lot of the, the juicy stuff. So all the stuff you really need to know about how life really works, it's all in books. Like a lot of it is in fiction. You know, we rehearse ideas about life and um, things that we wouldn't be prepared to say in nonfiction or in real life. We rehearse them in fiction. Yeah, so I, I felt that from a really young age and I've always found that books are hugely comforting. They can just take you to places that you can't otherwise go to. And I think that's true even now, you know, when when I was a child, I didn't travel very much. My horizons were pretty small. I grew up in a small town in Somerset. I didn't mm. even imagine that I would go and live in London. You know, that was I was a bit sort of like Dick Whittington, um, mm. like the big city and it's paved with gold. <laughs> um, but even now that we can travel so much, um, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, and that we can find out anything we want at the touch of a button, you know, on the internet, I still think mm. that books however you read them, whether it's a physical book or, or um, a digital book, books still can transport us in a way that another medium can't. I agree. Do you have any preference between digital and physical books? Yeah, I used to be very anti-digital. Um, I used mm. to, in my kind of early journalism career, um, I did an awful lot of book reviewing. It's kind of how I got into journalism in in a way. I can remember one of my first commissions when I worked on a newspaper was to write a book review. And Mm. I always felt like reading on digital was a bit of a cheat uh, and that you needed to see the physical book and know what readers would be getting if they bought it. Um, So I was very anti for quite a long time, even though, you know, when you're reviewing a lot of books to read, to have digital access to them can actually kind of speed up the process and make it easier. Um, But I, over time, have become more um, converted. So I use both now, especially because in the last 
three, four years, I've judged a lot of literary prizes back to back, like the most recent one being the Women's Prize, where you have to read about 150 books um, in a year. And then you learn really whatever works, you know, so whatever works for you as a reader, you know, if if um, it helps you to read as much as you want to by reading some of it on an iPad or even I, I have my Kindle app on my phone. And mm. I read a lot of nonfiction on there or shorter books. But then other books, I absolutely have to have the hard copy and I have to have it in my hands. And there are so many beautiful collectible hard copies now. So yeah. I'm I'm just a whore now, Lucy. I just mix everything up. <laughs> it's all right. I chose to have a, a floor to ceiling bookshelf rather than a wardrobe in our flat. So my husband and I have all our clothes in a small hole under the stairs. Wow. I was going to say you're naked, but you're reading a lot of books. That's a special yeah. kind of relationship. I feel, you know, you don't need clothes if you've got books. <laughs> I like that. I read a little thing you wrote about judging and about kind of having to get through that dearth of books. Has it affected your enjoyment of reading, do you think? Um, yeah, it's a very good question because it does become a very kind of focused, outcome-centred way of reading. You know, mm. you, you have a sense of re- responsibility and depending on the prize that you're reading for, because I've I've probably judged about 10 prizes now. Some of them are nonfiction, some of them are fiction, some of them are a mix. Like I, I judged the Welcome Prize, and that's a mix of nonfiction and fiction with scene, uh, themes of science and medicine. It's a fascinating prize to read for. Those shortlists are always incredible. Yeah, but you learn, you learn how to read really fast, and you learn to read whilst always bearing your own biases in in mind of course you're always going to have them and often when you're on a judging panel you may well have been chosen to represent your particular kind of biases so it's okay to have them but you also learn to read with other people in mind so you're less likely to just chuck something away because you think oh I would never read this this isn't me you Mm. learn to be more generous and think well who would enjoy this book and let me try and see it through their eyes after a while, though, and especially because, you know, I absolutely love the Women's Prize. Mm. It's very dear to my heart. And I think it's an incredibly important prize. But this year, because of the pandemic, it was extended by an extra six months. So as soon as the Women's Prize was announced, I took great pleasure mm. in reading not exactly trash, but uh, sort of guilty pleasures that I hadn't previously allowed myself to dig into. There's nothing wrong with that kind of book. That is my, <laughs> I love that you can switch between, you know, the more kind of hefty tomes and the, the ones that are light and silly and make you feel just I get cuddled up with silly words. Yeah, I'm a great believer in reading what you want to read and not caring what anyone else thinks of it. And so I use the terms, you know, trash and guilty pleasure very very lightly and and facetiously really because I don't feel guilty for anything that I read and I think at different times in our lives we need different things. So we've talked about reading let's talk about the books you've chosen what makes what made those books significant what makes a book significant to you or important or memorable? For me it's either a book that I will repeatedly reread and return to at different times in my life or it's a book that was seminal for me at a particular time, but I won't necessarily ever read it ever again. <laughs> it's it's some it's almost like a key, a book. So it a special book. So it's a key that unlocks something in you that makes you see the world differently to how you saw it before, or makes mm. you think, 
Ah, it's very simple. Ah, I am not alone. (laughs) I am not alone in this big old world. Well, your first book, I had never heard of, but when I mentioned it to my mum, she became positively giddy. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Kit Williams' Masquerade. Yes, I really recommend people have a a Google of Kit Williams' Masquerade. Notice I'm not really telling you to buy it. (laughs) I don't even know if it's still in print. Um, Kit Williams' Masquerade um, came out in the late 70s or early 80s. And it was this extraordinary children's picture book, nominally about a hare, as in H-A-R-E. It was definitely a hare and not a rabbit. Because I remember learning for the first time the distinction between those two things. (laughs) And it was part of a a very clever and surprisingly never to be repeated media campaign um, centred around this piece of treasure, like a jewelled hair that had been created. And the idea behind the book was that if you unlocked all of the keys in the book, I mean, mental keys, like all of the clues, then you would know where this piece of treasure was hidden. Mm -hmm. And it was hidden and buried somewhere. And I must have been given it when I was about six or seven. And it wasn't just the book. It was the idea that lots of people everywhere were reading the same book at the same time. And we were all trying to figure out this puzzle. And it was this magical idea of somewhere this treasure is buried and someone's going to get to it. And I'm pretty sure that I was following this story to see if anybody had found it. And it Mm. was on the telly as well. I mean, it was on the national news, this book, like nearly every night of like the hunt for the jeweled hair continues. This is what life was like in the 1980s, right? Before we had the internet. Um, And I just remember just being so taken with this and desperately, I suppose it's kind of metaphorical in a way that whenever you read a book, you're desperately trying to unpick all the clues that the author is setting for you of you know this is what I want you to understand about the world and you're trying to pick up on all those clues and in this particular case it was literal you know if you got all the clues right you would go and find the treasure and I think I imagined that you know you would like sort of win the lottery there's some I did I purposefully didn't look up um before talking to you the story of what happened in the end because I know it's really depressing (laughs) Oh, yeah. I read that. <laughs> and I've read it before and just thought, oh, I didn't want to know that. Um, but it's something like, you know, nobody found the treasure or some it wasn't real or like it all. I think it all turned out to be something of a hoax. No, it but, was real. Well, it, it was real, was it? Yeah, he made this very lovely treasure that he made himself and put in a, a box so that metal detectors couldn't find it. But I think, do you want me to say what happened? Yeah, yeah, go on, reveal it. <laughs> So so what Wikipedia told me, and I'm not saying I, this is right, is that first of all, someone called in because even though it was in the UK, they sold so many copies worldwide that they said if someone could send him a postcard with the with the exact location on, they would win it and he would send, dig it up for them, basically. Oh. So someone sent it in and said that they'd found it. And it turned out that this guy's friend's girlfriend was Kit Williams's ex-girlfriend and she'd found out vaguely where it was right. and told them so that they would then sell it and give the money apparently to a charity um so they were the ones that won it even though they shouldn't have but then just after them two physics teacher actually solved it oh little physics teachers you can always rely on the physics teachers 
I don't think they got the hair. I think the hoaxer got the hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, that was a cheat, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, let's forget all of that and imagine that I discovered the hair. Congratulations. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, the experience of reading that book and knowing that others were reading it and it being part of something bigger than me. I think that's what really did it for me. So incredible. So incredible. And then straight after that, you chose Little Women. Yeah, Little Women. Uh, which I really enjoyed uh, rediscovering um, in the last year through watching um, the film, the new film, which I think is wonderful. Uh, Little Women I must have read when I was about 9, 10, 11, and I became obsessed with acquiring all of the sequels. I think there's about two or three sequels. I certainly had Joe's Boys, and my parents had like such trouble acquiring these books for me I can remember it being quite a big deal um but yeah Little Women I loved because I have a sister and it I don't have more than one sibling I just have my sister Trudy and I loved the idea of these sisters living together and how sweet their mum was with them and just the closeness of that relationship that they had where they all really love each other but they also hate each other as well and I think that was maybe the first time I read a book and realized that really truthful portrayal of human life is Mm. is painful and it tells you what people really think about each other it's not just oh let's go and look for this treasure and everyone thinks everyone's great (laughs) you know there's a lot of cruelty you know women are very cruel to each other often sisters are very cruel to each other and my sister will tell you that for sure um I bit her on the nose um when she was about four I was so horrible to her um (laughs) so you know it's the sort of book that isn't afraid to show you that like I love that moment when this Amy says to Joe I think she says um oh, you've cut off your hair and that was your one true beauty. You know, this sort of subtle bitchery that goes on. (laughs) I just thought that was wonderful. And although, you know, if you watch the the Greta Gerwig film, um, am I saying her name correctly? Apologies. Um, You'll see she really brings out that strand of Jo wanting to be a writer and the feminism behind that and her Mm. not wanting to have to compromise and get married and become someone's wife I won't pretend for a second that I saw that subtext when I was like 10 or 11 but I definitely felt a little seed of it and it definitely sowed something in me of thinking yeah why shouldn't Joe do what the hell she wants with her life why is it a big deal like why does she have to be somebody's wife like why does she have to be pretty and have long hair and it was one of the first places that I was reading about these kind of ideas and I did definitely didn't formulate that in my head and I didn't really know what to do with those thoughts or what it meant but it definitely planted a seed and it was definitely one of the first places I went to as a reader where it portrayed somebody who wanted to be a writer and I knew at that point that I I I thought I wanted to be a writer as well so that's what I was saying before about how you know we go to books for clues as to how to live and we look 
for especially if we don't have any examples in our immediate life of this and certainly pre-internet this is true because now you could just look up like how do I become a writer or how do I get an agent (laughs) you can google that now you couldn't do that when I was a child and so you're always reading things to try and figure out how does anyone do anything and that book showed me at the time the things that stood out to me I think were Joe because again I wanted to write but also I think Beth I think for me, it was a book where I learned the sort of frailty of of human life and that these terrible things could happen. Yeah, I think I was always quite irritated by Beth. And I just thought, sorry, this is really heartless. This is the real me now. Um, God, why can't she just get better? What's wrong with her? really awful she does seem pathetic for a lot of it you know and I've definitely seen I remember seeing a play adaptation when I was much younger when Beth was sort of just this ghostly girl wafting around in the background while everyone was busy getting things done and you thought oh there's a lot going on Beth maybe you could uh, stop whining yeah Beth is a really interesting character because she she's a bit of a I don't know other fans of Beth may totally disagree with this but I think she isn't she's the least fully formed character and she only really exists in order to make the others look more vibrant you know Mm. to make their choices look more dramatic um and to make their losses and their gains stand out more that's what you know Beth is a sort of a literary device really yeah and also to point out that the life that the March girls were living was a life of privilege and it was a life of choice in a world where many women and many people um, in less less fortunate circumstances would not have had any choice. And Beth kind of exists to remind you of that. You know, these are very privileged people living very privileged lives and it's difficult even for them. Um, I didn't, I don't know anything about your next book and I'm going to show my terrible French accent, but it's uh, Bonjour Tristesse. Bonjour Tristesse by Françoise Sagan. Yeah, I chose this because I think it's a classic that more people uh, would the need to more people need to know about, and people would really really enjoy. It's a very short novella. It's only about seventy pages long. Mm-hmm. It, I think, um, please do correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure it came out in 1958 1959 in translation I was written in 1957 um when François Sagan the writer I mean it's 50s and not 60s isn't it oh well people, yes it was yeah. 50s but I believe some of it was cut out of the original printing okay Britain. okay so late 1950s and the writer François Sagan is 17 she wrote this book when she was 17 and it became a huge, huge phenomenon. I mean, sort of similar era really is Nabokov, Lolita. And this was, I think it probably outsold Lolita actually. Wow. So Bonjour Tristesse, which means hello sadness. And the title is taken from a Paul Eluard um, poem called A Peine des Figurés for French fans. And it's the story of a 17-year-old girl called Cécile who goes to the south of France for the summer with her father. Um, And she has lost her mother. Her mother's died a long time ago. And she has a complicated relationship with her father where he kind of treats her more like an adult than like his own child. And Mm. they're quite separated in in their lives. And in this holiday, he's trying to 
treat her a bit more like a daughter because he has on the agenda to bring a potential mother figure uh, into her life because he's potentially going to get married. And there's sort of two candidates that are proposed for this. One is a younger woman who's almost, she's she's only about 10 years older than Cecile. Mm. And the other one is a much older woman who was an old friend of her mother's. So it's partly about her relationship with her father and these potential stepmothers and it's partly a coming-of-age novel about um, her relationship with this boy that she meets and they're always trying to get away um, from the adults and have sex with each other on the beach and it's Françoise Sagan is a very kind of um, rebellious and uh, interesting thinker and even when she was 17 you know she portrays this world uh, in a very kind of mature way where she really shows what it's like to be that age and not really know what you're doing but Mm. wanting to do it anyway and it's also like incredibly atmospheric it's sort of one of the best summer novels ever written you can just sort of smell the ombre solaire and cold rosé emanating from the pages and it has um, I won't spoiler it for people because it's too short and I would just really like people to read it anyway but it has one of the most brutal endings of anything that you'll ever read that then raises tons of other questions Um, and it went on to become a huge phenomenon it you know Françoise Sagan had a long career and she wrote about another 50 or 60 books but none of them had the impact of this book. When did you first read it? I first read it probably when I was about 17 or 18 and I was obsessed with learning French. This is before I started learning Russian. I started learning Russian when I was 18. I studied French from the age of 11 and I was obsessed with France and speaking really good French and reading in the original where I could. Mm. Um, I used to go to France every every summer, every Easter and every summer to go and visit my French pen friend with my school exchange. And it was my total obsession. And a lot of it was to do with wanting to get away from my own family and get away from the small town that I grew up in. And I saw France and Frenchness as being this very glamorous thing. And yeah. um, my book, Au Revoir Tristesse, which obviously is the counterpart to Bonjour Tristesse, Au Revoir Tristesse, um, hers is Hello Sadness, mine is Goodbye Sadness. <laughs> and that book really delves into our lives as readers and how we use books to escape and to try on different versions of ourselves and in particular it looks into Frenchness and why we think that's glamorous and exciting and sexy I mean often like French people are really not glamorous or exciting and sexy it's also awful Um, I had sort of some close uh, encounters with French boyfriends and they don't smell good some of them (laughs) No, it was not the sexy experience I was expecting. So that book is really asking, using Bonjour Tristesse as a start as a launch pad. It's asking, you know, why do we put all this stuff on the French, and does it hold up to scrutiny? Oh, I can't. That's exactly what I was going to ask. How the book that you have coming—it's out now, isn't it? In the paperback. Yeah, Au Revoir Tristesse uh, came out in in June um, twenty twenty. So during the pandemic. And it's been really interesting to have the book out now because 
I was really worried. I was just thinking, well, nobody's going to buy it. Like bookshops are closed. I've had all of my events cancelled. It's being published simultaneously in the US and the UK. Can't we just put it off for a year? Which, I don't know, probably wouldn't make any difference anyway. <laughs> but in the end, it's ended up having a really great reception and it's done really well. I think because people love digging into the idea of comfort reading, rediscovering yeah. classics, it's a way of traveling in your mind when you can't go to France. Uh, and it's a way of all of us remembering that we do love other cultures. We do love to travel. We do love talking other languages. We just maybe can't do that right now. Um, and the book gives you the ability to do that without having to go anywhere and quarantine. Wow. Well, I'm very excited to read both of those, actually. But I, yeah, I've read the, your other book, The Anna Karenina effect oh Anna Krenin a fix yeah life lessons from okay. literature it's been, a while. it's been a while since I read it but but I really like when you do that when you sort of you know you're a reader talking about reading I think that's ultimately what I'm doing here and I think you have to not everyone enjoys doing that you know some people just just like to read and they've read it and they'd like to move on and then you've got the kind of people that that like book groups and I suppose we're those kind of people that just want to talk about what we've just read yeah I'm definitely fascinated by the whole process of reading and examining what it is that makes you want to read stuff and that, because I've never I mean I know lots of people this year during the pandemic have said oh I haven't really been able to read or I could only read poetry or I could only read um I had to start using audiobooks mm. and or having that as a huge discovery of wow audiobooks are incredible um but I've never had a time when I didn't want to read and that I couldn't find some kind of comfort from books. So I'm always really interested in, yeah, like you say, other people who feel the same way and and why is that? And I'm always on the hunt for, it's funny because it's a bit like diets, you know, they say, if, if or self-help books as well, like if diets and self-help books worked, you would only ever need one. Yeah. And there are millions of them. <laughs> but it's, all books are a bit like that. It's like if books were so great at telling us the answer to life and telling us what to do, we would just read one and then get on and do it. But we we don't. We, we, we read something. We're like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, now I'm going to go back to zero again. And, and now let's start again. And we're always looking for the next fix. So your final book, uh, I feel like, has answered the question of what did you vote for in the Women's Prize this year? If you vote, is that how it works? How do you judge? Just choose your favourite? Uh, well, I've, yes. How do I answer that question? I've chosen as my final book, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is the winner of the 2020 Women's Prize, which is the 25th anniversary of the Women's Prize. And I've chosen this book because I really, really love it. And I want as many people as possible to read it. Um, I'll say the title again um, because it is a bit confusing. It's Hamnet, as in H-A-M-N-E-T. And I know that that sounds like Hamlet, uh, yeah. as in the Shakespeare play. And this is important because this is what the book is about. So the book is about Shakespeare's real life son, who was called Hamnet. And in Elizabethan times, I think the terms Hamnet and Hamlet were sort of interchangeable. And so this is, but the, the real, his real name was Hamlet. And when Shakespeare wrote the play Hamlet, it is really about him grieving um, that uh, child because he died um, in adolescence. So this reimagining of 
Hamnet's life and the life of Shakespeare's wife, um, Agnes, uh, as in spelled Agnes, but pronounced Agnes. Uh, it imagines their family life and what it must have been like for them as parents to lose a child and what it was like as a woman, as a mother, living in that society, trying to look after this child, trying to have your own life and being connected to Shakespeare, who was generally just buggering off and doing his own thing and being quite annoying, uh, mm. whilst being brilliant at the same time, but nevertheless very annoying. So it's got a, it's got some wonderful different strands in it, this book. I mean, grief is a huge theme in it. Marriage is a huge theme. The emancipation of women and um, what women's interior lives were like when their lives were very reduced and they weren't able to play the societal roles that perhaps they would have wanted to. Those are huge themes in it. But there's also lots of slightly um, supernatural themes and the idea that there's a realm slightly beyond us that we might not quite understand. Um, Agnes is... Um, I don't want to use the word sorcerer because that's taking it too far. She's a she's a herbalist and she's a healer. So she really understands the natural world. She's always growing herbs and taking long walks in the woods and communing with nature. So there's a wonderful strand in it of celebrating the natural world. And she's making, I think, Annie, uh, Maggie O'Farrell a really important point in this book that we think that in order to be free and have an independent life and have a role in society, we have to achieve things and go after things and um, become the CEO of a company or something like this and have big shoulder pads. <laughs> um, but in this book, she's really saying, you know, what is a quiet power? What is uh, the sort of power where everyone in the village would come to you because you know the right herb that will treat this illness? Um, what is the power of empathy and kindness and of having an impact in a very small world? And it has had such an incredible um, response from readers, this book. People absolutely love it. They are broken by it. They read it in tears. Um, it's an incredibly affecting book. And yeah, if you have a chance to check it out and anything I've said makes you think, oh, that sounds quite good, then yes, please read it. Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I really hope it will get people to read more Maggie O'Farrell as well if they if they enjoy it because I feel like she's I mean she's not an underrated writer obviously she's a huge she's a huge success story as a writer but I I don't often meet people who read a lot of her stuff and I wonder if that will change now. Yeah, Maggie O'Farrell is an extraordinary writer and one of the things this book really shows is her versatility. She mm. this is of her first really historical novel in the sort of tradition of, of historical fiction I mean she has got books that are set maybe a hundred years ago but this is perhaps the most classic uh, historical fiction that she's written and I feel as if the next thing that she'll write will be something totally different she's yeah. I love um, The Vanishing of Esme Lennox that's one of my favorites yeah. of hers but she's she's a very brilliant interpreter of human feelings she really understands psychology and the psychology of families and of dysfunction and yeah. she is a I mean I've read a lot of interviews with her where she talks about her writing technique and she's very very um, obsessive 
and detailed. Uh, I just read an interview the other day where she said she wrote 17 drafts of her first novel. Uh, She's a real grafter. Not a moment wasted on social media, Lucy. I'm going to have to really step up my game, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Before we tie this up, you chose an independent bookstore to give a shout out to, and you're the first person to have chosen this one. Very good. Everybody needs to know about this place. Uh, Mr. B's Emporium in Bath, in Somerset, where I come from. Uh, This is an absolutely beautiful real-life bookstore. They also have a beautiful online presence. They do lots of social media. They have a fabulous website, and they've got a YouTube channel. And uh, they're run uh, by this guy, uh, Mr. B. He he is a real person. And it's a family-run business. It's very small and intimate and they care so much uh, in this bookshop. It's a tiny little sort of, um, it's in a back street in Bath. Uh, it's the sort of place where you could just go there and, and six hours later you'll come out and you'll felt like you've been in there for five minutes. And they have a lot of really great ideas about how to get a community interested in reading. They have loads of amazing events that happen in store, but they also have loads of events that reach out, reach out to the outside world. And I think this is so important with independent bookstores for them to survive um, in the coming years, because it's incredibly difficult to run an independent bookstore and, and to make a profit from it. It's virtually impossible. Um, I really, you know, these people are total heroes who do this and try and create mm. these hubs at the heart of our community lives but one of the brilliant things that they do and you can look this up online they offer a bibliotherapy service which is a book clinic so you can buy it for yourself or you can buy it for someone else and you can do it in real life or you can do it on zoom or you can do it on the phone or an email and you get in touch with them and you have a consultation with them with one of their um booksellers who are you know they're all basically like librarians everybody who works in the store and they talk to you about all of your reading preferences what you love what you hate what's your favorite book what's the last thing that you read um what sort of things are you interested in in your life and they get a they sort of talk to you a bit like a therapist or a job interview would and then at the end they give you a prescription of you know these are books um that these are say six or ten books I don't know I can't remember how many it is that that you'll really love and I know lots of people who have done this and they've just been blown away by the suggestions and when they've come to read those books they just it's like you know when a friend recommends a book and mm. you read it and you think oh my god I can't believe that this is just so perfectly aligned to me this is like this is like it was written for me how did you know they they managed to do that and they have a service where you can buy this for other people and you can also buy a subscription so that these books arrive every month so all the time you're getting these new suggestions that are tailored especially for you as a reader and it's that level of personal attention and really really engaging with the idea that reading is so intimate and subjective and I think we lose sight of that sometimes now because of the impact of bestsellers and Mm. books that become a phenomenon and everyone's talking about this one book and it's just so refreshing to have a bookstore like Mr B's Emporium in Bath who are willing to engage with every single reader 
on an individual basis and say, oh, well, if you loved Margaret Atwood's The Testament, then you've got to read Naomi Alderman's The Power. And they they just know, they know. Such a great idea. It's a brilliant idea. So good. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Viv. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. I suppose, yes, it's only 3.30. Have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Comics Books. Hopefully you've had a chuckle, learned something new, and most importantly, added some reads to your list. You can find full listings of all the books we talked about today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, it'd help us out massively if you could leave us a review on your listening platform. And finally, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Comics Books Pod. <laughs>